This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome again, everybody. Today, actually, we're going to talk a lot about natural gas. And, uh, you know, I want to start you off with a vignette from my energyfile.org website. So that's energyphile.org. And if you go into the file space, which is the collection of my museum items, there's one I'm particularly fond of, which is a collector card from a package of cigarettes around 1960. And, you know, back in the day, if you smoked and bought players' cigarettes, you would get a collector card. Uh, some of them would be like collecting all of your trains, a series of trains, Really? Uh, or ships or sort of things. Like it was, uh, and of course, you tried to collect all of the collector cards yeah. in a series. Like smoke, ho- more. smoke more. Smoke <laughs> more because, you know, you want to get the next, next collector card and so on. So anyway, I was fortunate enough in a curio shop to find one that was of the Methane Pioneer, which was the first LNG carrier. And wow. that first LNG carrier, as I researched the Methane Pioneer, went from Louisiana to Canvey Island in the UK, in, uh, hmm. and that's a, a port. So which we were is exporting about, LNG out of North America. What year was that? 1960. Wow, I 50, didn't know that. 59, yeah. And so the first cargo went from Louisiana to the UK, landed in Canvey Island, which is uh, if you take a train from London and head east. Which uh, I'm sure the, you have. Which I have done, of <laughs> course, to the Thames Estuary. You will go there, and uh, there are the remnants of the old first LNG receiving terminal. And so actually I'll post a couple of pictures of those as well, or you can go into the site and I'll... I'll yeah, we'll I'll put a link on. to the yeah, card we'll, too. Yeah, we'll put a link to the card yeah. and you can go see it. And so the Methane Pioneer actually was a response to the excessive amount of coal emissions, you know, just the soot uh, that was coming out of the chimneys in many parts of the industrialized world. You know, we went through the hmm. Industrial Revolution starting in the late 1700s, all through the 1800s and into the early 1900s. And by that time, we were making a complete mess with all of the coal that we were burning. And so clean natural gas was being introduced as a means to detoxify the atmosphere. It's a bit like China, right? Yeah, like they had gone all coal completely. and in the last well, several years have said air quality uh, is too big of an issue. It's like the same story. This is basically yeah. the same story, which is actually... As a side note, the whole point of the Energy File Project, which basically says a lot of the stuff that we see today is just a repeat of history. So anyway, the Methane Pioneer, Canvey Island, you can see the remnants that are still there. You can also get a sense of the the coal emissions in the story that I wrote called Stoke Stokes. So anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about LNG today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we do that, you know, so here we are, fast forward to 2020. And natural gas is under pressure now, not for toxic emissions, ones that would choke you to death, but because of the GHG carbon emissions. Yeah, and things have really changed rapidly. I would say even in the last year, in terms of how people look at natural gas, it was always viewed as the bridge fuel, you know, that we needed in order to transition away from coal. And it has generally, if you generate power with it, it's about half the emissions as mm-hmm. using coal. Right. So a lot of forecasts are quite bullish in terms of natural gas use. For example, if you look at the IEA current policy scenario, it's going to grow 30 to 40% over the next 20 years or so. So that's the status quo, assuming that there's no large-scale substitution by mini-nukes. Then that's basically if people meet their 
nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. So, mm-hmm. you know, countries have signed on to the Paris Agreement. There's, it's kind of confusing. They want to get to below two degrees, right. but what they've actually agreed to do would only get you to a three-degree scenario. So right. under that three-degree type scenario, right. you'd see 30 to 40% growth in natural gas as it substitutes coal. Right. But, but that's not good enough. Yes. Now the world wants to move more quickly to low carbon. So I think there are more questions. For example, in the IEA sustainable scenario, which is a less than two degree scenario, natural gas doesn't grow much from today all the way out to 2040. There's a growth and then it it comes down again. So by 2040, it's kind of like it is today. But interestingly, there are other scenarios that are emerging where you can decarbonize the natural gas in a pipe that comes to your stove or your furnace or what other things that uh, combusts by introducing hydrogen. Yeah, like think about natural gas. What is it made out of? CH4. Right, so you got one carbon and four hydrogen. Right. And why couldn't we decarbonize our natural gas? So we can, we already know how to do this, so that's been around for a long time. It's called steam methane reforming. And what it can do is, you know, release the hydrogen from those carbon molecules. Now the downside is it does create CO2. Right. The good news is it creates a fairly concentrated stream of CO2. So we could take that CO2 and we could inject it into an aquifer or into a reservoir. Right. Sequestration. Sequester it. And then we would have hydrogen. So, right. you know, here's a crazy idea. Could we not take our natural gas over time and transition it into okay. hydrogen? So you have a hydrogen field. Or you can take hydrogen from an oil field and dilute the natural gas stream. We talked about that in many podcasts Yeah, that ago. Proton podcast yeah. they talked about, yep. you could actually substitute up to around 20% up of 20%. the natural gas yep. used like in North yeah. America with yep. hydrogen. So we already have a fairly easy source of demand just through substitution. Right. And maybe it won't take away market share from natural gas if what we're doing is taking the natural gas, just taking out the carbon and then putting yeah. that product in. And you know what the, the advantage of that is? Today, when we burn natural gas in many of the applications, it's combustion, and these are dilute at atmosphere emissions that are all over the place, and it's almost impossible to capture that CO2. But if you do it in a steam methane reforming plant, you can capture that CO2 efficiently and remove it, and now you've just got the hydrogen. Yeah, so all sorts of interesting solutions are emerging 60 years ago or 61, I guess it would be, January 25th, 1959. That was the day that the methane pioneer sailed from Louisiana, the UK, to introduce a new energy system into the energy mix. 60 years later, now we're looking at that energy system and thinking about, again, how to reduce the emissions or or substitute or otherwise modify the energy system to have lower emissions yet again. Mm -hmm. Well, and it just shows you that innovation, right? Mm -hmm. Like when an industry, okay, now if if the solution is we need to get net zero, we can't have carbon emissions, maybe there is an option here with the things we have already, like natural gas. We can turn that into a zero emission fuel. Now we have to deal with the CO2, but you know, in a place like Western Canada, there's plenty of place to put that CO2 and sequester it. Well, we're going to come to Western Canada, but we started with the methane pioneer and the first LNG cargo. Let's carry through on the LNG theme first. And what is the outlook for LNG? And let's talk a little bit about LNG because we know we've got a glut right now. Right. We talked about that on our last podcast, yeah. that the prices are so low, like 3 or $4 US per MMBTU internationally when they used to be $10. And there's some concerns about considering the glut that we have with all the supply coming on from the US and Australia and other places, Qatar, are we going to need as many LNG projects? And Okay, I give up. Do we? 
<laughs> well, we're uh, we're waiting. Uh, Shell generally in February will put out an LNG outlook, and and if we look at last year's version, they were showing by about 2025 all the projects under construction and the existing projects would probably not be enough, and we would need new projects. I would say there was a lot of sanctioning in the last year when they re-updated. It might be the late. 2020s mm-hmm. before we need new projects. But eventually, you probably still do need new projects because even in a lower demand scenario for natural gas, it is still going to grow as it replaces a lot of coal that's used for power generation. We have one new project that is very close to us, the LNG Canada export terminal at a Kitimat. So what is the status of that? Well, that one is under construction. In fact, I was kind of excited. I think I retweeted it, a little video saying that they had something like 2,000 workers on site. That project is under construction, and you can actually go on their website and see a lot of information about what the project is. So it's underway, and do you think it's under any risk? Because I've had a few people ask me, you know, those who follow the prices Mm -hmm. of these uh, collapsed global LNG prices under the glut, and especially with the coronavirus in China, I've heard they're turning away LNG Mm -hmm. cargo ships. Does that affect the pace of development of the Shell LNG project? Well, if you think about it, even if they were to continue at the pace that they're on, they don't even ship LNG until 2025. And most estimates are these are all fairly short-term issues, right? right? We got this immediate glut from the U.S. having so much LNG that that would be cleared and that we will need new supply. So... I think a project that's this far along that's got a lot of sunk costs now, because you think about it, oh, you know, the 2,000 people, everything they've accomplished so far, if you walk away from it, that's yeah. kind of like gone, right? So yeah. now your go-forward economics are just the extra cost you have going forward. So I have a feeling that projects like that that are underway, are, are especially backed by companies like Shell, you know, that can fund them, yeah. uh, I think are probably not going well, to be Well, and we effective. have precedents for this sort of thing back in 2014, when the price of oil started falling, and by 2015, really, I would say it was falling, it was crashing. Mm-hmm. And through 2015 into 16, we saw many, many oil sands projects be canceled because the price wasn't high enough. But the projects that were still under construction, that were a fair ways along in their construction cycle, continued to be developed. And of course, I think, I think Fort Hills was one of them. Mm-hmm. That one, and you know, interestingly enough, if you go back in time, Curl. Mm-hmm. That That's was sanctioned oil, at, at yeah. uh, I think, right after the financial crisis, right? right? So sometimes these big companies like Exxon, they have the ability to fund projects even through the lower right. cycles. But you're right. In general, sometimes companies just literally don't have the money to fund them. Right. Uh, but, you know, a company like Shell that's got revenue from all sorts of parts of their business, right. I think, can fund it. And I also think that it's many years away before their supply comes Shell. on. It's not only Shell. I mean, it's, uh, there's, it has multiple partners globally. Oh, that's globally. true. Yeah. For now, there's a glut. The coronavirus is a uh, hopefully a temporary thing, and we'll move forward. But the domestic natural gas prices are, remain weak. The ability to bring this commodity out of the ground as a consequence of the technological revolution of the shale revolution, which really started 20 years ago, uh, but started to really gain momentum circa 2006-ish. I mean, it's just staggering how much shale gas production continues to grow and continues to pound down prices. Mm -hmm. To this point, the domestic North American sources of demand have been able to absorb it, notably the switching of coal-fired power plants to natural gas. Yeah, that's been a big driver of how we've absorbed it. Also, LNG exports, LNG you know, exports. gone from nothing to nine BCF per day, yeah. you know, currently. So these exports those, to I Mexico. Think, I think yeah. those two, three things combined mm-hmm. have been over 30 billion cubic feet a day, but the production 
total production of natural gas in the United States is what it's like. 90 BCF. 90 BCF. It's just crazy. And uh, for the first few months, it seems to have levelized, but we've seen that movie before several times where it sort of stabilizes and it also goes up. But really, we're in this era now where the drilling for oil is just producing a lot of what they call associated gas. In other words, the oil comes out of the ground, but by association, you get a lot of natural gas because they are all collectively hydrocarbons in the mix. Yeah. You know, there's different eras here, right? We had the time when we needed conventional gas where prices were like $8. Then we developed in 2010, 2011, shale gas. And that dropped the prices maybe to the $4 level. Right. On a consistent basis. And now with the development of tight oil and then all this associated gas that comes with it, we are in a new era where the average prices have been closer to 280 over the last four or five years. And today, as you know, North American gas prices, as measured in Louisiana's Henry Hub, Mm -hmm. were under $2 in the winter. Now, that's because we're actually producing way more than we have demand at this point. But this is sort of... $2 in winter. Let's just benchmark that because, you know, I certainly remember the days 15 years ago, uh, well, less than 15 years. I mean, you could you could dated all the way back to eight years ago, where cold winter weather would drive the price up substantially. Mm-hmm. You could even see $10. And certainly 15 years ago, we had prices that were well into the teens. And now, this now was in a winter, we're lucky to get commodity. three. Yeah. And, and now in the winter, you're telling me, we're, well, this <laughs> we're winter, under two. we're, we're yeah. under two. It just tells you or it gives you a sense of the ability to supply natural gas almost for free. Well, and, you know, we've had a very warm winter this year, and so that's been part of the problem. Right. We didn't get that surge in demand that we typically get right. because of the cold weather. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it is pretty incredible that you're, here we are in what's supposed to be the highest price season of the year. And, you know, gas producers do rely on seasonality here, and here we have such yeah, low well, prices. seasonality, I mean, I, I, I would suggest that even if you did have a normal or a cold winter, you still wouldn't get much past $3.50. No, I'm by, just looking you know, at a three, chart of last winter, which yeah. actually was relatively cold in the U.S., yeah. and uh, prices didn't get much above three bucks. I mean, the, I mean this, this whole thing, I mean, the natural gas, the ability to bring a jewel of energy to surface and to market is uh, just deflating over time. We've seen this also, the ability to bring a jewel of energy in the case of electrical energy from wind and solar coming down dramatically over time. So, you know, the power generation market is just sort of duking it out as with a deflating Input prices. Well, I guess the power guys yeah. are happy because they're yeah. not having to well, pay for it. But the, are but the ones having the to produce costs it. are becoming so low. But you know what's going to be really interesting about this year? Now, I, I'm sure the people that have to suffer with these prices don't feel it's intellectually as interesting as the me. producers. The producers yeah. here. Mm-hmm. But we, in, in the whole era of shale gas, we have never seen a major contraction, unlike tight oil. Contraction in volume? In volume. You know, in tight oil, we had 2016 when prices averaged like $42 and we saw how much U.S. tight oil would contract. And that's where all the people that had their theories that under $50 U.S. tight oil would decline were able to validate those theories. Yes, Mm -hmm. in fact, it does. We've never seen that with shale gas. And especially now in this era where we have a lot of associated gas that comes with oil that may not care about price as much. Right. So... This winter, you know, I I predict with the amount of supply we have, with the warm winter, with the fact that LNG exports may not be what people thought, we are going to test what is the price that will make North American supply decrease. You know, is it, it's obviously not where we are today. No. So is it, what level do we have to get to before these dry gas plays like the Haynesville, Marcellus start to decline? And will we 
see associated. I don't think we'll see associated gas decline, but will those other ones well, come we'll down? See. I mean, that'll be dependent upon the price of oil. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If it comes down and the drilling continues to go down, then you'll start to see both oil and gas production contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality remains that the ability to liberate gas from the ground is quite staggering. So staggering that, I mean, many parts of Texas and places like that have to flare the excess. That's the other dynamic. Well, they're, right? they're lacking infrastructure. And right, so right. But they, if but they had the infrastructure, we'd have even more gas in the pipe. Yes. Right? Well, that's the issue. When you look at the Permian, they actually have a new pipeline that just came on, but more capacity coming mm-hmm. on this year. And so even if they don't grow, and I actually think the Permian itself may continue to grow this year, you'd still see some growth in gas because stuff that's being flared today is now going to be captured, which is good yeah. for the environment, but it's going to probably mean that associated production continues to grow in 2020. But so then the real question is, what's it going to take for the Marcellus and Utica to really start contracting? Mm -hmm. What price level is it going to take? I mean, this has far-reaching consequences also for electrical power markets, especially unregulated electrical power markets in North America, where now you have natural gas setting a much lower price for power, which means it just becomes brutally more competitive, harder for investors to make a return on new electrical power installations. Mm -hmm. And so it has a ripple effect that is wide-reaching, not only for the producers of natural gas, but uh, also in the value-added segments of the energy supply Mm -hmm. chain. Depending on what sets the price of power too, right? right. Like in some of these areas, they they may uh, have power prices that are fixed and then the utility makes more, but it really varies Mm -hmm. around North America significantly. So, So, well, we can compete here in Canada, I mean, we've got some of the most prolific natural gas, but our issue is getting it to market as usual. Okay, so with the exception of the fact that Henry (laughs) Hub is just falling away on us, I'm feeling optimistic about the situation here in Canada. The last couple of years, we've talked about it on the podcast, it's been super challenging here. Hmm. While the Americans have been getting like 280 US dollars per MMBTU for their gas, we've been selling our gas at about a 70% discount, especially in the shoulder season when we don't have the winter demand. And the price here on average has been, this is different units, but $1.50 Canadian per gigajoule, which is really painfully low. Most oh, producers just, are yeah. are not able to uh, make money at that level. In fact, they're probably losing money for uh, the gas that they produce. So there's been a lot of positive changes. We've talked about them on the podcast. One is that we have a, a change in how we're dealing with the regional gas system. And so we're, we had a problem where gas was not getting to storage when it needed to be. And so that has been temporarily fixed for 2020. And I, there is some discussion now about solutions beyond 2020. So I'm very hopeful that we find a way that we can use our storage, which is a very important part of the natural gas markets. We have uh, new capacity coming. So we have expansion in some of the pipelines, like the system that goes to the West Coast, more expansions to the East Coast as we come into the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And importantly, production has started to decline here in Western Canada. We've lost about a half BCF per day of production. So we actually have some spare takeaway capacity right now. So I mean, so the depressed prices is actually making Western Canadian price uh, volumes contract. They did. It took a couple of years, but we yeah. saw over 2019, about a half BCF per day of decline in our production, which doesn't sound like a big number, by the way. We produce something like 16 BCF per day. But when you are producing just a little bit more than your export capacity with natural mm-hmm. gas, it causes the prices to fall because there's no place for the gas to go. So just getting a bit of spare capacity, it makes a big difference on price. In fact, the differentials between Canada and the United States are, are pretty much cut in half 
from what they were this time last year. So that's the good news. That's the good news. The bad news is, finally, we got the differentials where they should be. But the whole structure is falling. But now the price in North America has fallen. We're almost back uh, to the same level as the last two years. So no breaks for Canadian gas producers here. No, at that benchmark, Henry Hub. By the way, who... What is this mythical Henry Hub? It's in Louisiana. Have you ever been? No. Uh, maybe you this? should do a card no, on that. I got to do a card do a, on that. Like, who's Henry? A trip. Who's Henry? I don't even know. You know, we should. That that would be a great okay, project well, I gotta for look you. look it up. Who's Henry? Another energy Henry file project. Henry Hub is somewhere in Louisiana. Yeah. And ACO, I don't even know what that we stands for. We should get ACO Alberta. renamed, you know, yeah, to the Peter Terzakian uh, Hub or yeah, something sure, like that. Oh, yeah, sure, the Hub, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, somewhere between here and Medicine Hat, somewhere I've never been either. Yeah, I haven't been either. But these are, are places where the gas is traded. I don't know right. that there's even anything to look at there. That would yeah. be something to investigate. Well, I'll have to go and get my selfie yeah. taken there. Okay. Yep. So what's next? Well, you know, things are tough, obviously, for natural gas producers in Western Canada and, and North America yeah. as well. It got me thinking, is there something we can do with natural gas that's worth yeah, I mean, more, right? Like this is well, years and years of low prices. Like what can we do to turn natural gas into something that's worth more? Well, it's the than, whole value-added uh, concept. You know, we've got this commodity that is now deflating in value by virtue of technology. And so the bad news is if you're a producer of gas, it's getting increasingly difficult to make money off of it. The good news is if you're a consumer of gas or you're a value-added user, uh, all of a sudden you start thinking to yourself and scratching your head, okay, uh, places like Alberta have some of the, if not the lowest natural gas price in the world. What can I do with this stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the problems, though, is things like big power generators cost a lot, and there's yeah. only so much power demand in Western Canada. There's only so much power demand. So that can be an issue. Right. You could put up, you've heard heard companies done this, put up big server farms. Mm-hmm. But here's the issue. Some people don't want the greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So and there's for, a carbon tax on and top of that. And there's a carbon tax, right? So if you're Amazon, you've committed... I don't know if Amazon's committed, but to low emissions, um, then you want to have... Certainly Google, Microsoft have. Yeah, right, Microsoft. Then you're not going to put up a server farm that's using natural gas power. Uh, So that's a bit of a challenge, right? It is a challenge. But I'm thinking more about, you know, there's secondary and tertiary industries. You can make fertilizers. We do have fertilizer plants in the heartland of Alberta. But uh, I think we really need to start thinking about what we can do with these commodities from a value-added perspective. I mean, well, I have an idea. We sure. we take the natural gas, like just my idea at the beginning. We sequester the the carbon, mm. and then we use the hydrogen, we and we build hydrogen. big hydrocarbon. Hydro, yeah, yeah, and we build go. big carbon server farms, and we create uh, of hydrogen of hydrogen froth yeah. the natural gas, and that mm. way you could say, okay, all you corporates, and by the way, there's getting more and mm-hmm. more each day who want to be net zero. You know, we can bring your activities that can be exported here to Alberta, right. and we will set up server farms or what other t- other types of intensive industries, but with our hydrogen. And you can get to your net zero goal by coming here. Yeah. I mean, I think what the lessons of Canvey Island and the Methane Pioneer show is that, you know, when you have a situation that needs to be remedied, you start to get inventive. And we're at that crossroads again, whether it's with the emissions, the GHG emissions of natural gas and using the hydrogen economy, but also now thinking about what else can I do with this resource from an economic perspective to add value to it rather than just produce it and sell it for free, especially in terms of we're exporting it out of the country. We need to think out of the box or the, or the well mm-hmm. uh, about what we can do with this stuff. And I think the realization is setting in that we have a commodity that is going to be 
low cost and probably stable price without a lot of spikes for a long time to come. Mm-hmm. So what can we do with that? Yeah, and that creates I mean, opportunities. That creates right? opportunities. Yeah. And I, I think people are starting to think about that. I think it's really healthy. We don't have all the answers, but we will continue to think out of the well as we go forward about uh, the opportunities that are created in an ever-changing situation. Good. All right. Well, that comes to the end of our time. Thanks for joining our podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.